0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Arianna Brocious, in for Christopher Conover. On today's show, we talk with two students and the teacher behind a podcast project at City High School, which has created compelling stories about current issues and garnered national attention. First, we'll hear the podcast produced by Samantha Sesueta, which was selected as one of The New York Times' best student podcasts of the year. It's titled, My Incarcerated Family.
1: I love the sound of my cousins laughing. (laughs) They're so sweet and innocent, but I worry about them ending up in jail, which is kind of a horrible thing to say. But in my family, a lot of people get arrested and go to jail, and sometimes it's prison. How many people in our family do you think we have have been in prison or in jail or have been arrested? Ten, eleven of them. I don't know. My mom doesn't like to talk about it. Like, why do people go to prison and jail, like in our family? Because of poor choices, Sam. But why were we making bad choices, like my Theo Ray?
2: The first time I went to jail was 15.
1: My Theo was in a gang, and a lot of his friends were killed. He started doing drugs and then got in more trouble. Growing up, my Theo just seemed like a huge goofball. He didn't seem like a bad guy.
2: I wasn't a saint. I wasn't an angel. I was, I was a rambunctious young man who was who followed the crowd.
1: I did a research project on incarceration. I ended up meeting people who work in criminal justice. My name is Joel Feynman, and I am the chief public defender of Pima County. I wonder why he thought people made choices that landed them in the system. Drugs play a huge role if you have a substance abuse problem. Mental illness, uh, poverty, you know, lack of opportunity lack of education. It was heartbreaking, thinking about all the factors he had named. And when I thought about my family, it was like, check, check, check. I started high school at a fifth grade reading level. My mom and dad never finished high school. I'm going to college this fall, but I'll be the first in my family. Another factor that I kept thinking about was trauma. What about trauma? You know, we think of PTSD as only applicable to soldiers in combat, but it's not. I mean, people have PTSD because they were physically abused, because they grew up in a crappy neighborhood where there was gang violence and drugs. My mom and my Theo Ray grew up in the same neighborhood that I live in now. bali hollywood was it always a good neighborhood? No, it's still not. Do you You know how easy it is? Like, if I wanted to get on drugs, I could just go on the other side of the money schools and find somebody that'll sell it to me. I didn't realize how much my family had struggled. I don't know why, I guess it seemed normal. But I guess it should surprise me that with all the factors they dealt with, a lot of them became system involved. Do you think the system has helped the people in our family? No, the system does not help. There's more gangs in prison than there is out here. You go to jail and they just throw you back out with nothing. I wondered, if my Ray thought prison had helped him.
2: What I learned in prison was to be a better criminal.
1: At the Criminal Justice Reform Unit, I met Manny Mejios and Zach Stout, who were both formerly incarcerated. This is Manny.
0: Let me say first and foremost that prison is in no way corrective. Uh, they call it the Department of Corrections, but it, it does nothing to correct.
2: So any correction has to come from yourself. This is Zach. No, um, you know, we're sending a lot of people there who have substance abuse. You then become surrounded by drugs, and that was your problem.
1: And what about trauma? Assaults, murders, prison, especially prison, is a very, very dangerous place. I wondered if there are good things in prison, like education or drug treatment, that could help people make better choices after they were released. But Manning told me that there wasn't much there
0: any type of self-help class has to be offered through a volunteer because the prison can't afford to pay for it for himself. I don't know about you but there's not really a lot of people that are willing to go to a prison to teach a class.
1: I learned that in the United States more than 75 percent of people who are released end up back in prison within five years. When I first learned that I was shocked but it kind of makes sense now. We don't make it easy for people to make good choices but in the end I guess my mom is still right. I don't know what breaks the cycle. You gotta do it yourself. You gotta want change. You gotta not wanna be in the rut. You gotta just want different. Each individual can choose. It might be a harder choice, but it's still a choice. Frederick Douglass said that once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. And so I try to read to my cousins whenever I can. He chased him around the garden, calling him, Stop thief! Poor Peter ran into a gooseberry Oh, He got caught. He got caught? Again. Again? Yeah. I want them to recognize that there is a place beyond their current situation. Peter ran as fast as he could, slipped underneath the gate, and he was safe at last. A place where they can always be free.
0: That podcast was produced by Samantha Sasueta. She and Paloma Martinez are starting college this fall, but last year they were students at City High School. A nonprofit charter school in downtown Tucson. Both created podcasts as part of City High Radio. The girls say their podcasts were a combination of two classes the podcast class and a senior seminar youth participatory action research project.
1: So, for me, I wanted to learn more about recidivism and incarceration um, in Tucson, but mostly in the United States. And then Paloma did something with water usage in Tucson.
3: Yeah, because at first I was kind of like, Okay, so I was thinking about, like, environmental issues and water is, like, of course, the most important, like, thing that we need to, like, live. And I had seen this Netflix episode. It was called The World's Water Crisis. Yeah, and it kind of freaked me out. (laughs) So I, I started thinking, and I think as people in the desert, it's something that a lot of us, like, constantly are thinking about.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to ask about, so you explained now where your idea came from, and Sam, I wanted to know more about what drew you, I mean, you have a family connection based on the piece, so what interested you in pursuing recidivism as a subject?
1: I've been wanting to learn more about recidivism after I watched the documentary um, called The 13th Amendment. I remember watching that film with my mom, and she was just saying, oh, did you know this family member was in prison? They went to jail. And throughout this whole project, I found out things I didn't know about my family's history and past. And so doing this project, it wasn't just the audience learning about my family, but it was learning my own family history. And I always knew that the justice system always saw as corrupt, or I wasn't always sure about it. And I always thought in a black and white slate, but after doing all of this, it just really opened my mind and made me realize like there's so much more in hand than just a person seen as a criminal, you know.
0: Both of you interviewed family members for your projects and what was that like? What did it feel like to sit down with a radio recorder and talk to your family?
1: It was very hard. <laughs> <laughs> hours and hours of tape of them saying, get away, <laughs> or what are you doing? <laughs> it was it was very difficult. I had to get the tape that I wanted. I had to pretend that I was just talking to them, and I had to kind of, like, kind of say, oh, it's a project, I have to do it. Like, I have to get a good grade, and they're like, ugh, fine. And I noticed, like, when I did stuff like that, it was kind of scripted, but the reasons why I got um, such vulnerable tape was because, I didn't put the mic directly towards their face, I kind of, I had to (laughs) kind of play it off like I'm just talking to them like I I usually do, and even doing that, it's just hard to talk about this subject in my family, kind of doing this radio project, it kind of forced my family to look at what has happened in their lives, and kind
0: of push them into self-reflection, You both also interviewed experts and people from the city, the Pima County Defender's Office. What did that feel like? Was it intimidating as a high school student, or did you feel prepared to walk in and know what you were talking about?
3: Like at first, kind of. I was like, oh my gosh, like, okay, these are big wigs. Um, But like after the first one, I was like, okay, I got this. Like they're, they're just people like everybody else, and it was cool to be like in their spaces, like seeing what what they do every day and and I feel like for a lot of them, like they don't always get to have like that kind of conversation, like in their everyday
1: Yeah, mine was <laughs> it was very intimidating. Um very intimidating. Joel Feynman in particular intimidated me. Like to the point where I called my teacher and I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna do this, how I'm gonna do this um I think it just intimidated me because he was like the executive chief um, of the public defender of Pima County. And so that title really, it it terrified me. Um, but when I just sat there and I remember I asked the question and it was a hard question to ask. And I remember I had to prep myself to ask him this and it was, You know, why do you think my family is incarcerated? And he kind of gave me this look, like, he kind of looked at me and (laughs) and squinted at me, and I was just like, oh, no, oh, no, what is he going to say? And then he started listing things. He was like, well, is your family poor or rich? Does your family go through trauma? Does your—like, listing the factors that lead up to incarceration, he was just asking me. And all I could say was just yes. Like, it was kind of like a checklist. I realized, like, he's just like me— fighting for something that we're both passionate about. After I realized his values and, you know, his his work, he wasn't as intimidating because I just saw the human part of him, if that makes sense.
3: I feel like that was the coolest part, or, mm-hmm. like, one of the coolest parts of doing, like, these stories. Yeah, just, like, feeling that, like, personal connection to people, like, that you just met. Yeah. And I feel like I definitely got better at that. Like, Wow. Making these sto- this story.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot that comes through in listening to your podcasts. And it's evident as as a listener that you both learned things about the subjects that you were researching. But I'm wondering what you learned from the process itself. Maybe just not just the facts, but the process of assembling, of doing the research and reporting and assembling a podcast. What were sort of the takeaways for you?
3: I learned a lot from doing this story in particular and just like kind of like how much time and <laughs> and work that it really takes to make like a good story and our teacher i mean she was amazing sarah bromer shout out to sarah bromer um, from city
1: high radio from city high radio.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like we spent hours at like coffee shops on weekends and like yeah we had
1: to put in like some yeah. good work but it was a really good experience and I think the hardest part about this process is having to cut out tape that you really yeah. love. It was oh so hard. Gosh.
0: So what, what do you hope that people who listen to this will take away from each of your podcasts? No matter
3: where you are and how much water that you think that you have, like it's always important to know where your water comes from and know that like it's not... It's like not going to be there forever or like it's hardly ever going to be like secure, you know, which is a really scary thought. But at the same time, we have to also take into account like all the other factors like the environment or just like pollutants. And like kind of how it affects the ecosystem, because a lot of times when we have drinking water or water that we think is sustainable, it's taking it from another place and affecting other people. So I think that's
1: really important for people to to note. You know, we all have our views, our political views on incarceration within the United States. But, you know, making this podcast, it's just in hopes that a lot of people out there can see from a different perspective I mean, that's why I started it with my little cousins to show like it's like a metaphorical thing, like towards the end with like the reading the book, like it doesn't always have to be in order to break a cycle, like graduating high school and going to college, like, you know, realistically, like not everyone's going to do that. But even the little things just like reading to your kid or spending time with them or finding a, a good mentor or, you know, investing in. And education and reading and especially because I learned that you're more likely to be on welfare or be system involved if you can't pass the fourth grade reading level and I didn't know that it's just the little things you do for your younger generation and just learning from your mistakes we're all human you know
0: well thank you both very much for talking with me thank you thank you that was Samantha Sesueta and Paloma Martinez student podcasters with City High Radio now we'll hear an excerpt of Paloma Martinez's podcast titled A Crisis in the Desert, which she produced as part of City High School's radio program.
3: I live in Tucson, where summers are beginning to reach 118 degrees and the Saguaro cacti are 45 feet tall. You'd never imagine that there used to be a river that flowed right through the middle of town. There were watermelons growing on the banks and people used to have boat parties and picnics under gigantic trees but the river is dry now. I live less than a block from the Santa Cruz River Wash. All it is now is miles and miles of sand and trash. I hear there might be a global water crisis coming soon, and I hear about cities like Cape Town running out of water, and I look at my city, and I feel afraid. My mom is worried too. You know, being a homeowner and stuff, it makes me consider If I want to even live here or if I should sell it now before you know the word gets out that there's gonna be no water left and then everyone abandons like I envision this ghost town my teachers are also worried do you ever worry about Tucson running out of water yes all the time yeah I guess yes absolutely
2: oh my god I worry about Tucson running out of water every single day
3: I wanted to know if we were right to be so worried about water security so I hunted down some experts.
1: My name is Sharon McDell. I'm director of the Water Resources Research Center at the University of Arizona. And I do not see Tucson running out of water
3: in the near future. And then I asked a cultural ecologist.
2: Uh, My name
0: is Joaquin, Joaquin Murrieta-Saldivar. Do we have a water crisis? Not really.
3: Just to be sure, I asked a superintendent at Tucson Water.
1: I'm James McAdam.
3: Can you see Tucson running out of water for any reason in the near future? No. It doesn't keep you up at night ever?
1: No, no, it really doesn't.
3: Okay, so if there's no crisis, why is our river dry?
2: I think the simplest reason why it stopped flowing is that too much water was pumped out of the ground.
1: And so rivers are connected to the ground below it.
3: They explained to me that Tucson is built on a giant aquifer, which is like a big underground reservoir of water. We dug wells and pumped up the water, and as the population grew, they had to dig deeper and deeper.
1: But if you start pumping that groundwater and you pump it a lot, then that tends to take the water from under the river, and the river doesn't flow anymore.
0: You can hear that whole piece and find a link to the City High Radio podcast on our website. Sarah Bromer has been a teacher at City High for 15 years and has been running the youth radio
2: program nearly as long. I was really interested in radio, and I was a an avid NPR fan, and so I, I just wanted to learn how to make a radio story. So I asked my principal if I could teach a class where we learned how to make radio stories, and she said yes, and... And so we started the class, and that first year, I think the kids really taught me how to do it because I didn't, they were just so much more technically savvy than I was. And from there, you know, I took a few classes and figured out what I was doing a little bit more, and we we operate on a shoestring budget, and we make radio stories. <laughs> So
0: when students come into the class, are they given an assignment in terms of you are going to produce one episode of a podcast this year, uh, and the subject matter is up to them, or how does that part get worked out?
2: Yeah, so we have, we do two projects, um, one project every semester, and each project becomes a podcast episode. The first semester we do Vox Pops, because that's just a simple way to learn the technology and the editing program. Man on the street types of things. Yes, yes. And then um, the second semester, we do personal projects, and the subject matter is completely up to the student. They get to choose whatever they want, and then that also becomes a podcast episode. And I think what makes the class really unique is how much time the students spend on a single project, because my goal is for them to make professional quality work and to have that experience, because I feel like they gain so much from that. So... The two students that I talked to, both of their podcasts were pretty meaty
0: in the sense of tackling real subjects, water scarcity, incarceration, and recidivism. They mentioned that that was kind of combining a class that was sort of a research project with the podcast. But in general, are the subject students pick that type of thing that are self-generated or do do you help encourage them to pick something that's kind of a, a deeper story?
2: Well, they're definitely 100% self-generated because they're going to be working on it for a whole semester. It has to be something they feel really passionate about. So, uh, but they often come up with many, we spend some time in the beginning looking at many ideas and thinking about the potential for each of those ideas and who we could interview and how available those people are and, uh. But I mean, students have done stories just about how much they struggle to get along with their dad or something like that, too. I mean, and, and that, that's substance. I think they're, they're all substantive. But um, as far as being something that is a hot topic in the in the news right now or something that the nation's talking about, not necessarily, although it's always nice if we can connect it to that. But I feel like they always do pick something that's very meaningful to them and and i think what's meaningful to young people is just interesting to everybody so i think it always it always works out
0: and this year you submitted at least a couple of these to two different contests one through npr and one through the new york times is that something you do every year or did this year this year did you have a couple stories that really to you rose beyond the the
2: normal pack this is the s- first year of N- that npr had a student contest and I think it's only the second year that the New York Times has had a contest. So I actually didn't know about these contests until I think somebody forwarded me a link or something. And, um, and I didn't choose those stories. I, I, I immediately thought, well, well, somebody in our class can win this, no problem. <laughs> you know, because when I heard about the contest, I felt like all of my students had the potential to be contenders because they do work so hard on their stories. And there's always a few great stories every year. So I, bas- I I actually took the contest to the class and I said, is there anybody in here who wants to go for this? And I told them that I thought all of them had the potential to win the contest and that I really believed each of their stories could make it to that level if they worked at it. And I just asked them who was interested. And Sam and Paloma raised their hands and said they were willing to do it. And I, I said, well, it's going to be a lot of work outside of class because... While we do try to make sure all of our stories are at a publishable level, you know, not every single one is at a national contest winning level. So I knew it was going to be a lot of extra work. And I told them this is just going to be hours and hours of work outside of class if you really want to push it to that level and you really want to try. And there's no there's no real reason to enter or, you know, you can enter it, but there's no real reason to say I'm going to do it if you don't do it all the way.
0: And one of them won. And one of them won. Yeah, which is great. So you talked about how dedicated Paloma and Sam were this year. Were there skills that they demonstrated that were exceptional or beyond the
2: level of some of the other students? I don't think that they came into the class with any exceptional qualities that every great journalist needs, particularly. I think what made them exceptional was just that they showed up and they kept working at it. And they were fearless. I think they were both really gutsy. Paloma, what really impressed me about what she did in her story was her ability to get these scientists and spokespeople to open up and be so passionate because I feel like I was a little worried about her story. I was like, oh, scientists can be really boring to interview. I mean, I if you're not... I'm fascinated by a lot of science, but just for the person who's not necessarily that interested, it can be a little boring listening to a scientist be an expert on something. And then she also interviewed, you know, a spokesperson. And I feel like people like that are are used to saying the same things over and over again. They're used to being interviewed. They have kind of these canned responses. And, you know, one thing that I taught the kids in the class that I think was really useful for Paloma in this story was to really use your youth and ignorance to your advantage. I feel like sometimes kids feel like, oh, I have to, you know, when they're doing an interview, they have to seem really professional and like they know what they're doing. And and when you're a teenager, you really want to feel like you have authority. That's the whole job of being a teenager. And so I find that they often try to fake their way into this place of authority when they're doing anything, you know, and I just, so I told them just, Just remember that your strength is actually in your ignorance. Like these people are not expecting you to be an expert and you're naturally curious. And so just go out there and if they say something you don't understand, just don't be afraid to be like, what? I don't understand. And don't be afraid to say that over and over again. And so I feel like Paloma really took that to heart. And these scientists and spokespeople would just be like, okay, you know, like you really, you want to know what I really think? here's what I really think. And and you can just hear it in their voices, how much they care and how passionate they are. And I feel like that really was the strength of her story. And then I think Samantha was also incredibly brave because she did this really personal story about her family. And um, she was a little fearless about just going into this emotional territory with her family. And then with the experts that she interviewed, she was just willing to to put herself out there and be embarrassed. And she did get embarrassed a lot, but she kept going back. And so I was very proud of how brave they were. What do you think the class, your class, offers
0: from whether it's the interviewing, um, the audio production, the, the storytelling, the writing? Are these skills that you see give students a different set of things that they may not be getting from other classes? What's the benefit there?
2: One thing I really love about writing for radio is that it's different from from other kinds of writing in that you you really have to worry about time. And so you have to learn to be very succinct and very deliberate with every single word that you use. And the other thing about it that's a little bit unique is that you have to sound real. You have to sound authentic. And I think one of my very favorite things about teaching this class is that the kids who have spent their entire lives thinking of themselves as great writers are not necessarily the kids who are the best writers in radio class. And so I often have students who come to my class and and they are struggling readers and struggling writers. I think sometimes it's easier for them to write in their own voice, you know, or to just write write something brief and short and in their real voice. and And then I think hearing themselves on the radio and hearing how, and, you know, getting... Getting all that positive feedback for how powerful their story is, is just, it's something that can be very transformative for a kid who has spent their whole life thinking, I'm not a good writer. It's a very accessible field.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Sure. That was City High School podcast teacher, Sarah Bromer. And that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on the NPR One app. This week's show was produced and edited by me, Ariana Brocious, with production help from Emma Gibson. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. Christopher Conover will be back next week. Thanks for listening.